trying to talk to you in high school Couldn't even get a look cause you were too cool But now we're older and we're playing by the new rules We lived and learned Cause it's time Hello again everybody and welcome back to Card Advantage I am Clues, one of your faithful hosts And joining me as always is the other faithful host, Rich Rich, how are things? Things are well Things are well Good, good. We are back after a brief hiatus as the summer started here. Things got a little busy in our personal lives, so we took a couple of weeks off. But hey, we're back, which is good, because there are things to discuss. Things have happened. Things have occurred. Records have been shattered and broken left and right. Uh, all kinds of craziness. Thousands of people descended upon tournaments worldwide, because just this past weekend, we had... The Modern Masters 2015 events. And so three, kind of four simultaneous worldwide GPs all occurred. Uh, it was spectacular and fabulous. There's all kinds of superlatives that get thrown around about this. But before we dive into that, let's take a step back to the week we missed. The week we were away. The week of Modern Masters release, which, strangely enough, was on a holiday weekend in the U.S. So, Rich, did you get a chance to go play in any release events? No. No, okay. I was out of town. Yeah, I think that that is going to be a common refrain from a lot of people, that they just didn't get a chance to. Now, I I understand that, you know, there are a lot of things you have to schedule around, but, ah, man... A release event on one of the biggest travel holiday weekends in the U.S. probably not great. No, I think from a from a numbers standpoint. I know uh, I was actually I didn't get to play in any events, but I ran a bunch of events. So we had events over at Atomic Empire in Durham, North Carolina. It's a great shop. You should check it out. And we ran like eighteen eight man drafts over the course of the afternoon. Wow. Yeah, we pretty much only had to stop because if we fired any more, they wouldn't be done before the store needed to close. So that's where we cut it off. Um, strangely enough, you know, I know we talked about this back when we first started talking about the new Modern Masters. Uh, they had plenty of product. So I know uh, last time around, like two years ago for the first Modern Masters, I'm pretty sure we chewed through virtually all of the product that day, like the release day. Uh, between people who pre-ordered boxes and the events that we ran and packs that were sold on site, it was, they were just pretty much completely wiped out. This time around, I think we only churned through about half the inventory. So, uh, from a numbers standpoint, looks like there was more printed this time around, which I guess is not surprising. I mean, last time around was a big, uh, I don't want to call it an artificial shortage. It was a conservative print run. Let's use those words. It was a conservative print run last time. So, You're a conservative print run. Uh, I've been accused of being many things, but yeah, okay, that's not the worst thing I've been con- uh, accused of being. Uh, but I don't think that this time around it was nearly as conservative of a print run. And in fact, I've heard rumors, and I cannot prove these, but I've heard rumors that retailers will be able to order a second batch if they want it. From what I've heard, and this is not a knock on the set, this is just what I've heard from our, my local card shop, is they um, they got a lot of it still. Yeah, yeah. So that, that brings up another big point that has been bandied about in the community. So the first Modern Masters, I think you could have subtitled that. It was Modern Mas- Magic the Gathering, Modern Masters, colon, value. 
Right, because that set had a lot of value. So if you could get your packs at MSRP, which I think was about seven bucks, it was like six ninety nine, if I'm not mistaken. If you got your packs at MSRP, you had a real good chance of opening that much in value. Uh, this time around, eh, not so much. This time around, there are a few really, really expensive cards that you can open. For instance, Foil Tarmogoyf. More on that later. Uh, but there are also a bunch of cards that you can open that are, let's face it, bulk mythics, right? Cards that just aren't worth all that much. So while the average return on a pack of Modern Masters might exceed the, the MSRP of a pack of Modern Masters, if you look at the median instead of the average, yeah, you're going to find that lots of those packs are not really the, the bottom end. The bottom end of those packs is going to be a couple of bucks, right? Yeah. I mean, I know I personally have opened some packs because uh, we, the wife and I have a box of Modern Masters that we've been slowly opening up and playing Pack Wars and things with. So far, no no, no God Pack this time around with the Goyf, Foil Goyf. Sorry, uh, lightning can only strike so many times. Uh, but I have opened a surprising amount of uh, Daybreak Coronet, for instance, which uh, it's an okay card, but it's really not what I'm looking for. Uh, right. So, uh, let me ask this, and maybe you, you don't know, but have, have you played the set at all? I have not played it yet. Okay, have you talked to people who have played the set? Um, not really. I've talked to a few people, not a lot of people. They say it's fine, it's, it's okay to draft. Yeah, and that was my impression, that, uh, it's, it's a fine draft set. Yeah, it's, um, a friend of mine said, I asked him if it's worth the money, and, and he says, eh. Because they're still they're still charging like forty bucks, and he says it's a fun draft experience, but he's like not getting value out of it. Right. So I guess this one should be titled uh, Magic: The Gathering Modern Masters 2015 colon Not as much value. I mean, I talked to uh, um, my local card shop. Uh, they're running um, for forty bucks, but they're giving away they're giving pity packs. Yeah. Which normally that's not, that doesn't, that's not the case. Right. Like, I remember the first set, it was 40 bucks, you got what you drafted, and if you like, you didn't do well, you, that was it. Yeah. But now it's like, and they're, they're selling the packs at MSRP, you know, 10 bucks, so you're paying 40 bucks for four packs into draft. So, I mean, it's worth it for the four packs, I guess. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. I mean, if you're if you're guaranteed a pity pack if you lose, yeah, I would totally do that. Forty bucks, sure. Four packs, sure. I would totally do that. Um, I I have only played it a little bit, so uh, we'll get more into that when we talk about uh, GP Vegas. But the the feedback I've gotten from players is, yeah, it's it's a pretty good draft environment. Not as nearly as good of a sealed environment, but a pretty good draft environment. Um, so. I guess that's something. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, you can have a good draft environment in just a regular set when a regular set costs, what, four bucks a pack? Yeah, something like that. So for a little over two times the pack, is it two times the draft experience? Probably not. Is it two times the value? Uh, probably not. So, you know, I... I I, I just don't know. Yeah, I don't want to be, you know, we, we had the show, I think it was our last show that we put out was, uh, uh talking about some of our, our, our mixed bag of feelings about Modern Masters. Uh, and I guess what I'm saying is the mixed bag of feelings still is there. Uh, at the same time, 
I just happened to be at a little event this past weekend where tons of people had an incredible amount of fun with the set. Uh, now, part of that was the hype of the event itself, which was a really good event overall. Uh, and some of it was certainly uh, playing with the cards. Some of it was the the value of some of the cards open. Because, yeah, you could, you could hit the lottery. You could get something real good. Um, so, I don't know. Uh, time will tell if Modern Masters 2 holds the special place in people's hearts that Modern Masters 1 did or still does. Uh, but I don't know. I just don't know. And I still don't understand Daybreak Coronet in a limited limited environment like that. Um, okay, I get it, the Boggles deck. You want more cards for the Boggles deck. But put it in, I don't know, uh, an event deck, I guess? Make the Boggles event deck? I, I don't know. I don't know. You're a Boggle clues. I, I've been accused of being worse, in fact, than a Boggle. But... Let's talk about Vegas. Did you happen, and I'm going to guess the answer is no, but I'm going to ask anyway, did you happen to watch any of the coverage this past weekend? No, I did not. Okay, well, the folks at Watsy did something kind of new and interesting. So Watsy has a Twitch channel, and they they made a second Twitch channel. So now there were two magic Twitch streams. And because we had events going on in the U.S., as well as uh, Utrecht and Chiba, you could pretty much be guaranteed that no matter what time of the day or night you were tuning in, there was probably live magic going on somewhere that you could watch on one of those streams. So it was like just wall-to-wall magic streaming coverage. So if you couldn't make it out to one of these events, you could have watched the pretty much the whole thing. Uh, and I've heard the coverage was good. Because of my role this weekend, I did not get a chance to watch any of the coverage, so I feel kind of badly about that. But I've heard it was good. Hopefully, you listeners out there watch some of it. Please let us know. What did you think of the coverage? Has the coverage improved? Did you enjoy the multiple streams? That kind of thing. We would love to know, uh, quite frankly. So uh, please, by all means, tell us. But I was in Vegas, uh, good old Sin City, and last Modern Masters in Vegas... Uh, it was at the convention center kind of out from the strip and we had like 4,500 players and that event seemed huge. It seemed enormous. It seemed like this beast that would never again be seen. But here we are two years later, different convention center. We're now downtown just kind of off the strip. Uh, oh, it's not even the same convention center. From no. Last time? Yeah, it was a different convention center. Uh, last time again was kind of hung out away from everything. Uh, but this time it's kind of down in the heart of uh, of everything. Uh, you could actually just hop on the the monorail and take the monorail down to the strip and be right in the heart of all the big hotels uh, like Caesar's Palace and all those things. But no, we were uh, at the Las Vegas Convention Center, which is right next to the Westgate Hotel. If anyone knows Vegas, Westgate used to be the Las Vegas Hilton, which is where the Star Trek experience was, but that's not there anymore. And the Las Vegas Hilton moved, and so now they've renamed it, and it's now the Westgate. But anyway, the point is, different convention center. And I say that because it looked a great deal different on the inside. So last time we had like 4,000 players split into four different color-coded flights with a central stage in the middle. And so you kind of had quadrants. And so you basically had a GP worth of people in each quadrant. You combine them for a super GP. This time, there were so many players that they decided early on that as soon as we hit 5,000 pre-regs, we're going to split the event and it will be run essentially as two separate simultaneous mega GPs with two separate top eights, two separate prize pools, two separate invites, 
or sets of invites to the Pro Tour, all that stuff. So basically double the prizes uh, for GP Vegas. And it worked. We ended up having like 7,500 and some players at GP Vegas. Uh, so it, it fell shy of the 10,000 player cap, but there may have been 10,000 players there, quite frankly, because of all the side events that were going on. And again, it was set up in kind of this quadrant system. So on one end of the room, we had essentially one GP Vegas with four quadrants. And on the other side of the room, we had another GP Vegas with four quadrants. And one side of the room, all, each of the quadrants, they were color-coded and they were named after uh, creatures from Modern Masters. And the other side, they were named after Planeswalkers. So I was on the Planeswalker side, and so we had Gideon, Nyssa, Jace, and Chandra as the four quadrants. And then on the other side, we had uh, Iona, Tarmogoyf, Vendillion Click, and Kiki-Jiki as the, the four quadrants. And, you know, for how big it was, for the spectacle that it was, for how large the room was, it didn't feel as big as GP Vegas 1. And I don't know if that's just because I had already gone through GP Vegas 1, and so now it's it's kind of the, the new normal, or if it was just how well the, the room was laid out, because it was laid out pretty well through this, because we, we put side events in the middle in between the two events, and then the two events on either side. And so you didn't even have a lot of bleed over with announcements, because the PA system was set up such that the announcements from the main stage were only on the speakers on one half of the room, and the announcements from the other main stage were on the other half of the room. So it actually worked really, really well. In the end, and I say all of this, and this is all a setup for me to make the following statement, it was almost mundane for how big it was and how much was going on. The main event itself ran fairly smoothly, and it was just like any other GP of like 2,000 players, even though... I know each event had like twice that. So I was shocked. I was stunned. Um, big hats off to the folks who did all of the logistical behind the scenes stuff. They did a bang up job. I'm not saying it was perfect. There were hiccups. There were speed bumps. There were, I'm sure there are players who could tell us stories about having a bad time. But overall, it went really smoothly. And overall, the feedback from the players has been pretty good, at least in my opinion. Um, let us know if you disagree. Hopefully... Hopefully you agree. I did meet a lot of listeners, ran into a lot of folks who uh, who recognized me or knew I was there. Uh, in at least two cases, I was recognized entirely off of my voice, which is always trippy, uh, including, and that leads to this story, the wife and I played in a two-headed giant event on Friday. It was the only side event that we had time for because we were going to be on staff Saturday and Sunday. But we played in this two-headed giant event, and I'm telling you this story, Rich, because I have a confession to make, Okay. So we sit down for our two-headed giant event, which, by the way, had like 400 and some teams. We had 840 some players in this two-headed giant event. So the size, what we would have thought of as a decent-sized GP like three years ago, that was a side event. That's totally insane. a side event. So we sit down to build our pool, and we're cracking open our packs, and the wife and I are comparing cards and sorting them into colors, and we're talking. And the guy across from me just stops like in the middle of sorting some cards, and he looks up at me. He goes, wait a minute. Are you clues? And I'm like, yes, yes, I am. So that's kind of how I started off the weekend. Now, here's the confession time. Okay. So we've got to build two decks between the wife and I for this two-headed giant event. And looking at our card pool, we had a pretty decent green-red aggro deck going on. And we also had a pretty decent blue-white control deck going on. So guess what I played? Mm. 
Not the one I'm thinking of, I bet. Yeah, I played the blue-white control deck. Now, hopefully everyone was sitting down when I said that. But, okay, let me, let me just tell you, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you two cards that I opened up. Well, three cards that I opened up. And, and you tell me, uh, if I should have just gone ahead and played this deck. Uh, I opened a foil cryptic command, which is probably the most expensive card that I opened all weekend. And I opened a Karn Liberated. And so I'm like, well, I guess we're going the control strategy here. I also opened up a Mana Leak, so, uh, I did in fact cast all three of those spells. I felt good about the Karn, which I only got out one game. Didn't feel quite as good about the other two, but I did in fact use Cryptic Command in its usual one-two punch of counter that thing, draw a card. Uh, and man, I, I don't know, I, I didn't feel good about it. Didn't feel good about it at all, except that it was foil, so that happened. And I felt even filthier when I cast that mana leak. Oh, God, I... It went against everything that I stand for as a magic player, but I had to do it because that's what the cards gave us. <laughs> so, yeah. It's okay, because you can feel good about it. You can feel great about it. <sighs> I suppose I could, but I just don't. I just... I just don't. You can revel in its glory. Hmm... Not sure glory is the word I would use. I felt kind of filthy. I needed to go bathe. It was... I don't know. Our final record, because uh, that event was a five-round uh, prizes based on record uh, sort of thing. Our final record was uh, two and three. We could have been two, two, and one, but in our final round, we scooped to our opponents. Cause, uh, so, like many of the larger events, they were doing prize tickets. And uh, we weren't going to play in any more events that weekend because we were working the rest of the weekend. And so we wanted the other guys to get as many prize tickets as they could. So we just scooped them. So that was cool. That's nice. Yeah, so that was my main playing experience. The only other playing experience I had was uh, at the end of the weekend, on Sunday night after the event had wrapped up, they threw a party for the judges, and we ordered pizza, and uh, we drafted some, because they, they had some product. They had some stamped product, in fact, left over, because they always, they always bring extra stamped product. More unstamped product in a minute. They brought some extra stamped product just in case anything goes wrong with the stamped product that they're using or that they have more people than they expected end up making day two, because during day two, all of the drafts done on day two were used stamped product. So they had extras, and they give it to the judges and let us let us play sealed. So that's, that's or let us play draft. Uh, so that's what we did. So I did get to draft it a couple of times, and it was kind of a fun draft format, quite frankly. Um, I mostly tried to make aggro decks, because it's what I do. Um I don't think I got any huge money cards. The one, the one deck I tried to force was an Eldrazi deck, cause I got like an Artisan of Kozilek and an Ulamog's Crusher, and, uh, they just kept passing me the, uh, Eldrazi Temple, so I just kept taking them. Uh, and that deck worked fine, except that my opponent that I was playing had drafted all of the Narcolepsies, like possible. And so even though I drafted heavily in green, I know you hate green, but I needed it to ramp, uh, I would ramp into a big thing and he'd immediately put it to sleep. So I dubbed him Captain Ambien and uh, he just put narcolepsy on everything and it didn't work out well for me. But still, it was fun hanging out with judges, eating pizza, playing magic. That might be the best way to enjoy magic, hanging out with friends and, and enjoying pizza. That's not a bad, that's not a bad way to do it at all. Yeah. Yeah, so the event itself, like I said, went very, very smoothly. Uh, there are all kinds of, of uh, statistics that there's a post on the mothership. I think I pasted it in the chat there for you, Rich, uh, that is, let's see, I think it's called Drawn to Scale. 
Uh, and it's got this infograph with all the things that went on. Uh, for instance, this was probably my favorite. Uh, based on statistics, the number of Emrakuls, the eons torn that were opened, if you combined them into a super Emrakul, just from the packs open this weekend, uh, it would have over 11,000 power, which is crazy. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you want to put the side events into uh, perspective, supposedly, as of uh, sometime on Sunday, they had over 9,000 drafters. Now, that's double counting some drafters, because you could play in a flight and then go get in another flight. But if you just count up the number of drafts they fired and multiply by eight, had over 9,000 drafters. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, What I wonder, and here's what I want to ask you... Is it possible to go bigger than this? And I just don't know the answer to that. I don't know either. It's a it's a hard um, it's hard to say. I mean, it all depends. Who knows what Wizards will do next? You know, what's the next? You know, if they do Legacy Masters, I bet you they might get bigger than that. Oh yeah, God yes, we'd come out or, of the woodwork for that. You no, know, can't call it Legacy Legacy Legends, something like that. Yeah, there we go, Legacy Legends. Uh, I mean, God, who knows? And you you put stuff in there like Jace. Or, oh yeah, hey, rainstorms, but like you know that kind of crap that costs everything in the world. Speaking of which, I should probably also fess up to this because no one's called me to task for it yet. So I'll just go ahead and do it to myself. You remember long ago when I predicted that they were going to reprint Jace in Modern Masters and that that would be the flagship card and that would be what drew the numbers and that they're totally going to do? Yeah, they didn't do that. They didn't do that. Yeah, I got that wrong, but I knew at the time it was probably wrong, but I wanted to go out on a limb, and damn it, I went out on a limb. I still think it would be fine. Um, I mean, yeah, he would dominate the limited format, but how many would be opened? Not that many. So it would be fine to unban Jason Modern because it's a format I don't play. Okay, there, I said it. That Aren't night. sweetheart clues? <laughs> well, no, uh, to be less glib about it. No, I, I think we have enough answers that we could probably get away with it these days. Um, in modern? Yeah, in modern. Eh, pr- maybe, probably. I, I honestly don't know. Yeah, well, there's one way to find out. Eh? Eh? Just do it. They're no, not going to do it. I think, gonna... I think they're more likely to unban Stoneforge before they unban Jace. Yeah, although Stoneforge was probably a mistake, too, just as cards go. I mean, what's it going to find? It's going to find Batterskull every time. Yeah, yeah, which, speaking of which, again, I, we mentioned this living weapon totally in this set, but no Batterskull. Too good. It is too good. I mean, Batterskull is one of the probably best equipments they've ever made. Oh, yeah, I will definitely agree with that. Because, one, it doesn't need – it's uh, it attacks by itself, doesn't need a creature. Yep. And then you just put it back in your hand. Yep, just put it back. Oh, you're going to blow that up? Nope, I'll just put it back. Yep, yep, yep. Good stuff. Uh, Okay, so what else went on this weekend? I mean, you know, I could just ramble about all the things that went on, uh, but I I think that that would be kind of silly. Uh, It would just be me soliloquizing, and I don't really want to do that. Uh, Instead, hey, let's talk about something a little more interactive. Let's talk about a controversy that went on a, I'm going to call it a quote unquote controversy that went on. Yeah, because it's not really a controversy. Yeah, at least, or at least it it's should. More of a, it's more of a thing that sparked a lot of discussion. Right. And probably angry tweets. Oh, God, yes. Lots and lots and lots of angry tweets. So, on day two, during the top eight draft, one of the players in the top eight draft, who at that point was pretty deep in a red-white strategy, 
goes to open pack two. And have you watched the video of him opening I, that pack? I haven't watched the video. Okay. The video is pretty telling because, uh, okay, so let's, let's talk a little bit about logistics of top eight drafts and stamped product while we're here. Let's just take a moment and take an aside. So normally when you draft like just a grinder or you get a sealed event, you're handed sealed product. This is a package that came out of a booster box. We opened it up backstage and we handed it to you. When you get to day two of the GP or you get to the top eight draft of a GP, you instead get stamped product. And what happens with stamped product is uh, Watsi, or at least Watsi employees somewhere at uh, at Watsi headquarters, open up packs of magic cards that came out of booster boxes, just like normal magic cards. They don't like seed them or anything, but they open up normal packs of magic cards. They lay out all 15 cards. They take the basic land and the tip card and they throw those away because you don't need them. If there's a foil, they remove the foil and they put in a random common from the set so that there are no foils in there so that the distribution for everybody is exactly the same so you don't have some open... Just, how come they just open a new pack that, does, that one doesn't have a foil instead of put a random common? Uh, I, don't know, that, that's, I don't know. That seems like... I would think that would be more honest. Not that what they're doing is not honest, but it seems more legitimate, I guess. I don't know. Well, if you think about how the foil gets in there in the first place, uh, packs have a common missing and a foil inserted. Yes. Right? So all they're doing is undoing that without opening more extra packs. I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can debate on why they do it one way versus the other, but the end result is that you have a normal... 14-card booster pack, because we removed the basic land, or in the case of sets that don't have basic lands, a 15-card booster pack, but no foil, and they then take a little stamp that is a specific shape and color, uh, and they have different ones, and they stamp everything in the pack, and then the contents of that pack are recorded, and it's it's written down and set aside, so... Uh, in the end, uh, that pack is then, uh, they take one of the cards and they turn it upside down so that you have magic backs on both sides of the stack. And then they wrap it in a little slip of paper that's then labeled. So it's like uh, Grand Prix Las Vegas uh, Draft 1 Pack A, right? And so they, they now know that this pack has this distribution of cards in it. And that's that's set aside so that if there's a question later as to whether this card belongs in this draft, you know, so somebody somebody makes a play and they go, hey, wait a minute, I don't think that anybody opened up that card, or uh, hey, I think my opponent, like, slipped a card into his deck. Well, we know. It, we, we have a, a written record of what's actually in these packs, so we can tell this isn't there. Or you can look at the stamp, and you can go, well... All of pack A were stamped with a blue star, or all of pack B were stamped with, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, a green X or a yellow birthday cake or whatever it happens to be. So that's what, that's what stamped product is, and that's why it exists. It's for the integrity of the draft environment itself. So we know none of these cards were slipped in by anybody ever. Because once you make it to the top eight, a lot's on the line. So just to keep everything on the up and up, that's where stamped product comes from. So here we are. In this draft. And what had happened in this one is, you know, every pack had a foil. So they did not remove the foils from the Modern Masters packs for the drafts for the stamp product. So uh, Pascal Maynard, who is the player in question, he opens up pack two. He pulls a little paper band off when he was instructed to do so. And he flips over the top card because that's the one that had been turned upside down. And it, it just so happens that that was the foil. And he flips it over and it's a foil Tarmogoyf. So there he is. 
on camera, the commentators are watching him draft this pack, and he flips it over, and you can just see him just stop. There's just an instant where he just freezes, because he just flipped over a foil Tarmogoyf. He then thumbs through the rest of the pack, and looking through the rest of the pack, the uh, the best card he could have taken for his deck is probably a Burst Lightning that's in there. Uh, it's red, it's removal, it's in his colors. Uh, it was probably a better pick. But in the end, he chose to pick the Foil Tarmogoyf. And I can't say I blame him. Now, there was a lot of criticism that came out after this. So just making the pick doesn't seem all that bad. But there was a lot of criticism from other pro players that this is not something that he should have done, that it was, uh, you know, uh, somehow cheapening the whole draft process and that, you know, you really should take the card that's going to give you the best edge, even if it's only going to increase your chances by like 1%, you should still take every chance you can get. So there was a lot of criticism that was leveled at him. But look, he had like 40 to 45 seconds from the moment he saw that card until he had to make a decision. And it's basically like saying, hey... Here's a $400 bill. Do you want this $400 bill or do you want a slightly better, and I mean slightly better chance at winning this draft? I would have taken the $400 bill. I won't lie to you. Besides which, when else are you going to have the story of, hey, I opened this foil goif live in a top eight draft? Now, the story does not end there, by the way with the criticism because after the fact he decided because if you if you ask him and he actually said to people uh, at the time and afterwards that uh look traveling to gps is very very expensive he he doesn't get enough chance to do it uh because money money is an issue for all of us and the foil goif was essentially something he looked at as this is something that i can turn around and sell and i can afford to go to more gps plain and simple so his plan all along was to sell it. And as of this morning, and I don't know if you uncovered this in your reading about Goifgate prior to now, uh, he decided to put it up on eBay. Now, he also decided when putting it on eBay that, hey, this might go for a lot of money. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take half of what I make from it and I'm going to give it to charity. I'm, in fact, going to give it to the Gamers Helping Gamers charity, which if you guys know John Finkel, he is totally involved with Gamers Helping Gamers. It's a charity that helps... Uh, gamers go to college, quite frankly. So, so there it is. He said, you know what? I'm going to donate half to them and I'll keep half. Let's put this up on eBay and see what happens. And as of late yesterday, when I looked at it, it was at like $2,500, which ain't too shabby for a stamped foil goif that was opened during a top eight draft. And it more than made up for the amount of money that he missed out on by not making first place because first place wins four grand i think fifth through eighth still make i want to say like a thousand so he he wasn't missing out on a ton by by taking this foil goy but do you know what it's up to today rich do you have any guess like five thousand uh no as of right now the current bid is at sixteen thousand dollars oh my goodness yeah so as of right now, this is at four times what he would have made by getting first place. So kudos to him for taking a uh, a weird situation and turning it to to his profit. Yeah, that's um, that's something. Yeah, yeah, and some of the money is going to a great charity too. So 
I think that that is just awesome. So, Goifgate, what would you pay for a foil Goif? No, nothing. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't pay $16,000, but... Uh, but in all fairness, as a one-of-a-kind, there's probably never going to be another foil Goyf that's got a GP stamp. Yeah, certainly not that uh, was opened live like uh, like this story is. So, yeah, I mean, this is this is literally a piece of magic history right here because uh, that pick is something that will be talked about likely for years and debated about for years. I, know, I saw him. He did a post, and he even says, yeah, I misplayed. I probably shouldn't have done that. But he said just sheer entertainment value, he would do it all over again. Oh, yeah. And I am so glad he did. You know, if nothing else, I think it makes it more realistic if at least one person at the table rare drafts, because that's what's going to happen in a real draft anyway, right? There's always yeah. at least one. Yeah, that's true. Nothing nothing like the money draft. But yeah, good old foiled Tarmogoyf. So, uh, what are going to be the long-term repercussions from this event and from this set? That's a question I pose to you, Rich. For this event, um, maybe Wizards is going to start seeing what they can do to do this, repeat this, because, I mean, God, they had to have made so much money. Yeah, you know, I don't know how much money Wizards made directly on this event, but just on the publicity from this event, the interest, the uh, the amount of hype generated in and around the community. I mean, there was an article today in Rolling Stone magazine about, well, the online version, because who buys magazines these days? Uh, and please don't write with hate mail if you buy magazines. That's fine. I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying that the future of print is probably online for better or for worse. That's a debate for another day. Anyway, uh there was a, uh, an article in Rolling Stone about this tournament. That's you know, so it's it's reaching mainstream media uh, with this. Um, the thing that I hope to see is, you know, if you think about it, even though we have what maybe a couple of thousand people watching the stream on any given GP weekend, uh, I would like to see the audience for watching competitive magic grow. Because if you look at uh, the big streamers of like online video games and play-alongs and that kind of stuff, their numbers completely dwarf what Magic gets. If you look at sporting events, that viewership completely dwarfs what Magic gets. Yep. And I, I think that if we cultivate this, if we present it as, uh, I guess, spectacle, uh, as as an entertainment thing to be watched, if we can drive people toward that, I think that it has a very healthy future uh, for that entertainment value. I don't, the the thing is, what one thing that I think they need to I mean they're they're trying, and I know they're trying. I'm not saying they're not doing it because they aren't just not doing it, but like because I watch professional League of Legends, and that gets hundreds of thousands of people on Twitch, YouTube, and various channels to watch hundreds of thousands. And the thing is, you have all the information at your fingertips of what's happening. You can look and see exactly what's happening everywhere. Um, that's just something Magic doesn't have. They're trying to get you what's in their hand. They're trying to show you what certain cards do, mm-hmm. you know, as they talk about them. Um, but until they can get to a point where it's so where it's so easy for everyone to just know what's going on at all times, they can turn on. They didn't have to see anything. They can easily identify the board state. They can easily identify what's in each player's hand. I don't know how much if it can start to reach that size. Also, I don't know how much magic is entertaining to people who don't play magic, whereas some people who don't play some of the esports still watch esports. Right. 
because they can understand what's happening, but they just don't need to play the game for its entertainment value. I don't know if Magic has that. Mm-hmm. Or if you compare it to something like poker, you know, people will watch these big poker events even if they don't play poker because they yep. still understand poker and so they can see what's going on. Exactly. Magic has such a high learning learning cap that even like people who I think beginners who start watching it still don't understand everything that's going on because the level of play they're making is over their heads. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, he... they're over my head. They the way they think, but. Oh yeah, things that seem like, oh, that's the obvious play, and then they do something else and they win the game off of that other play, and you're like, holy crap, I never in a million years would have thought that that was the correct way to do things, but. Exactly. So it's, it's things like that, like, um, because I watched a lot of the d- different things online, and I love watching magic, but it, t- there's just some, it's so hard because it's not digital. And all the other stuff that you watch is digital, it's easy to present this information. Mm-hmm. And you present it live, where it's to, to do that for Magic is difficult because cards change, and you can't tell your players they can't hold their cards the way they normally do. You can't have them like make their hand face something that's recording what they are. Yeah, you can't tell Brian Kibler to stop shuffling his cards so fast because he will explode. Yeah, I mean, this is there's things that you can't really do. So I just the fact that Magic's real life. And I don't want to see it switch to, like, Magic Online either. Because if it was Magic Online, I guarantee they could find someone to develop a very decent spectating mode. Oh, yeah. It's super easy to do. And then have people comment based on that. That wouldn't be hard. But I don't want to see it move to that. Yeah, I don't either. Because I like real-life Magic. But being that they're real-life, they're handicapped by so much. And I honestly, one of it is the learning curve of the game. Mm -hmm. Like, you tomorrow could turn on Professional League of Legends and watch it for a couple hours and get it. You can maybe not know everything, but you can understand the game. Whereas people doing that to Magic who don't play it, have never watched it at all, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, even in a limited environment, you've got like 200 to 300 cards, individual unique cards. Maybe, you know, if you're not in this limited of a set, if you're like in a block, you've got maybe 600 cards that are all unique and all do different things. You have to know all of them to understand why this play makes sense. Yep. But, you know, you just can't do that. So, yeah, maybe maybe that learning curve is just always going to be uh, a natural limit on uh what we can what we can do cuz honestly if wizards wants to expand their viewer base they really just need to expand how many people play the game right and our, i mean there's already a lot of people that play the game but they also don't they a lot of them are not tournament goers i just i think the casual you know kitchen table people don't care as much cuz one they probably don't they don't care about standards they don't want to watch a standard tournament mm-hmm. um they you know you get you know Johnny combo player, that's all he plays his, all these like weird casual decks that, you know, that have all these broken combo pieces. And for him, that's how he plays magic. That's fun for him and not playing that's not fun. So for him to watch, um, black, white tokens take on red, white, blue control and modern, he doesn't care. No, he does not care one bit. Magic's audience, that's the thing is Magic's audience is so, who plays their game is so wide, which is great for them because they can appeal to many people. But online competitive or watching their competition online doesn't appeal to them all. Right. And I think that's, I mean, they have to work on their, their player base is what they need to focus on to expand their viewership because they really can't be looking outside of it because you're just not going to get it. 
maybe, maybe the, with the movie and some of the stuff they're doing, maybe that does something. Oh, you know, until this very moment, I had forgotten about the movie. But that is totally coming eventually, let's say. It is. And the, the thing that scares me about the movie is I don't know the actual percentage of, of the, the numbers that people who play Magic or used to play Magic that would still hold enough interest to see the movie. What worries me, they're A, they're going to appeal just to their fans, mm-hmm. and they're not going to do very well in the box office, and that's the end of what we see. And that maybe Wizards and Fox both take a huge dive on it. That would suck. Or they try to mass appeal, and they just alienate the fans to like, okay, it's uh, some epic fantasy movie that's using Jace and Gideon's name, but nothing else. Right. Outside of their names, it's not magic. That if you so, make it if you make it too much like magic, you alienate the mainstream. If you make it not enough like magic, you alienate the fan base. And that if you exactly. go in between, you just alienate parts of both of them, and it's just no win. Exactly. That's why I'm ex- I'm excited to see what they do, but it's also it has me worried on the ramifications of what this movie will do. Yeah, uh, I think it's going to be entirely based on Dak Faden, and because everybody loves Dak Faden. Honestly, the the smart thing to do would be based on one planeswalker. Yeah. That would be the smart thing to do. That would be the easiest thing to do. Using five characters is... Well, at the same time... Ensemble, main focus casts are difficult because you need multiple movies to really give them decent depth. Right. And you to plan a sequel not knowing how well the first is going to do can be real dangerous. Because if you leave it at open ending, you know, then me and you will get super excited for the next one where it did not do well in the box office because they went... they. They gave it what magic players wanted to see, and that's just, and that wasn't enough. We don't see a second one, then you hate the first one. Because mm-hmm. they didn't give you what you wanted. Okay, but, uh, so example number one, of course, of ensemble casts that doesn't really compare properly, but let's just start there. The Avengers, right? Yes. Avengers, spectacular, but they had literally like 50 years of comics and multiple solo movies to set up the Avengers. Well, and that's the thing is though, they didn't, all your character development growth isn't necessarily in Avengers. Right. So, uh, the, the, uh, they they do ensembles right because they don't have to do everything in one movie. Okay, so now here's, here's the example that I think hits closer to home now that we've got the obvious one out of the way. What about Guardians of the Galaxy? Cause nobody read that comic. I mean, relative to the sales of the tickets. Like, nobody read that comic. No. The characters were unknown. Uh, the story was pretty unknown and kind of out there. It does tie into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but not so tightly that you had to see the other movies to understand it. But there, we had a single movie with an ensemble cast that I think hit it out of the ballpark. I agree. So it can be done. It can be. But the thing is, the Planeswalkers aren't a team. Uh, this is this is true. They're not really an ensemble so much as a collection of people who occasionally hit each other. Exactly, and the, the thing is, they're going to intertwine, they're going to mix, they're going to mingle, they're going to come together, they're going to separate, you're going to have two-on-three, one-on-one, things like that. Well, Guardians, was they were out there together for the most part, they were working together, they were a team. I just don't think Origins is going to, or if that's what they use, are going to have them as a team. Mm-hmm. It's just like, because then they would have to introduce Nicol Bolas, and everyone have to, would have to be fighting Nicol Bolas, and that would have to be their goal. Or the Eldrazi. Or the Eldrazi, you're right, because I mean, we do have Nyssa. So you, it could be it, you know, but I mean, then why use Liliana? She's not going to help. That's not who she is. Ah, but okay, look, through Acts 1 and 2, no, she's not going to help, going to be totally out for her best interest. But the turn, the twist in Act 3 is that she is going to set self-interest aside 
uh, to help, let's say Jace, because I know they had a, a past. That's what it would have to be. She would have to say, sorry, Jace, you're on your own. And something happens to Jace, and she has to be like, well, damn. So, Watsy, if you want us to write this movie, just let us know. Rich and I will take a crack at it. We'll give you a first draft. We'll be we'll be happy to. We work for Peanuts, or at least for packs, preferably but, packs with good cards in them. Let's say let's say we work for boxes, sealed boxes of beta. How about that? That's not too bad. Yeah, could be worse. Could be way worse. Or you just we get to, we get to be extras that kick Jason the nuts. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, sign me up. Sign me up. So hey, that actually leads uh, kind of directly. I didn't mean for this segue to happen, but here we are into uh, the last thing I thought we might want to talk about today. By the way, listeners, if you haven't noticed, this this week is a potpourri episode because uh, Rich and I haven't had a chance to talk about most of this stuff. So this week's a potpourri episode. Next time we'll go back on an actual single topic for the show. But this week, uh, grab bag. Um, so there was an article that went up today on the mothership. And it is by Jenna Helland, and it is Magic Origins, A New Era. And so it gives us kind of a little, uh, like 50,000 foot overview of what storyline stuff, how it's going to work over the next several weeks as we lead up to MTG Origins. Cause you know, MTG Origins is coming to us in July. So leading up to MTG Origins, they're going to talk about, uh, not really, I'm not going to call them the big five, but the five from Origins. So Gideon, Jace, Liliana, Chandra, and Nissa. The Origin Five? Uh, yeah, let's call them the Origin Five. Because the other ones are, we, people call them the Lorwyn Five. The Lorwyn Five, right. So this is going to so be the is... Origins Five. Yeah. Uh, so we don't yet know what all their cards are going to do. We know their cards are going to be flip cards. We've already seen the Liliana flip card, and I think it looks great. Very so, excited about that design space. So, so good. Oh, I just called them flip cards. No, transform cards. They are not flip cards from Kamigawa. I apologize for making that mistake. They are transform cards a la Innistrad, which was one of the greatest sets ever. Um, no, so... Wh- which is why I wonder why they're pulling from that. I wonder if that's why I go, you know, Innistrad was great. Let's use this. Uh, yeah, could be. Uh, I know it was a very hard sell. If you talk to the designers, it was a very hard sell when they first introduced it. It was a hard sell to me, too, but you get used to it. Yeah, you do. You actually get used to it very quickly. It becomes very intuitive um, after a little while. I mean, there's a little bit of hassle with the mechanics of, uh, you know, uh, uh, checklist cards and that kind of jazz. But look, people have been playing now for years with that little bastard Delver of Secrets in so many formats, and it's fine. They got used to it. Uh, anyway, so what we've been told is that we have these stories coming. Uh, and we have a schedule of the stories, so we're going to start with Chandra on June the 10th and Ugh. talk about, whoa, look, Chandra's fine. Let's save she's, all of she's, our... She just seems boring to me. Uh, have you read A Purifying Fire, the, no. the story with Chandra? It's actually pretty good. Uh, she's she's a little more in-depth than than you might think initially. I'll, I'll give them a chance because I love story. Okay. Uh, and we, we need to save our disdain for the green planeswalker, right? I mean, that's what this show's about is being down on green, right? It's truth. Uh, anyway, so we're gonna start with Chandra. Uh, from there, the next week will be, will be Liliana. Week after is Jace. Week after that is Gideon. And finishing up in early July with Nyssa. So, 
Right, let's raise hands. Who's excited for Liliana's? I mean, that's uh, this oh, guy right here. God, yes. Uh, I, I, have you ever read the comics? Uh, they have some some older digital comics on the mothership. If you can find them, they're kind of buried. Uh, that star the planeswalkers. And there's yeah, one that I've, they're online ones. They did like about or some of them was origins and stuff. I think there's one about Tezzeret and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, I've read some of them, not all of them. So there is one that goes at least a little bit into Liliana's origins, and uh, those those are all good. Uh, they they kind of skip around in art style and writing style because it was done by a, a broad range of people over time, which is a little bit weird. But you, again, you get used to it. Um, but yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna learn more about Liliana, and I'm super excited and stoked to find out about her past. Um, believe it or not, I'm actually kind of excited to learn more about Jace's past, even though I hate that I am, guy. I am too, because technically his amnesia, doesn't he? he yeah, doesn't he, his past? he does not remember his early past, and it's unclear whether that was something done to him or something he did to himself. Because he is about the memory manipulation. He totally is. That is totally his thing. Uh, now, the other nice thing that we learned here was uh, that the stories are likely going to involve and weave around a total of 10 different planes. So the home plane of each of the origin planeswalkers and the first plane that they planeswalked to. So here we go. Here are the 10 planes that we are likely to be involved with coming soon. And let's start... Let's start with the the planeswalker that I kind of care about the least in this list, and that's going to be Nyssa. Let's just start with Nyssa. We know she's from Zendikar. Very excited about that. Love Zendikar. Her first planeswalk was to Lorwyn, so that's going to be the tie-in uh, there for Zendikar and Lorwyn. So, which yeah. makes sense because that said, when she planeswalks, she found more elves, and elves are on Lorwyn. Yep, sure are. Sure are. Uh, let's see now. Who do I like next least? Uh, I, I guess maybe Gideon, even though I like Gideon. I love Gideon. Um, he was, by the way, created for the book A Purifying Fire. Okay. So the, the, the Chandra story, he was, he was introduced there. But his home plane, which I still feel is a little bit retconned, is Theros. Wait, wait, here's the, here's the thing, and maybe you might delete this later anyways. Oh dear, hold if- on, let me take a look at the time. Okay. All right. Go ahead. If they're saying um, Gideon's Middle Eastern, right? Why is he from Theros, which is 100% based on Greece, uh, whereas the Mediterranean is supposed to be Liliana? Right. Um. Just saying. Artistic choices. I I have no good answer for that. I'm just, I'm just saying it just makes the the Middle Eastern thing feel even more forced when. It's not like he's from Arabia or whatever some of that stuff is, or just some random plane. He's from Theros, which is 100% based on Greek and Roman mythology. Right. That's that's my piece, I guess. I don't know if you're deleting that or not. No, no, that one will probably stay in. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. I got, I got nothing. But apparently, uh, he first planes walk to Bant. Yes. Which he, also makes sense because that's a war. He was, that's a warrior planet. He's a warrior. Yeah, so Theros and Bant, those are the two for Gideon. Now, again, I feel that we're a little, a little retconning the whole Theros thing, but fine. Look, I, I will give the nice story folks the benefit of the doubt here. I'm sure they have their reasons, but we were just at Theros, so I guess Theros isn't super well, I mean, exciting to me. Theros is a fairly warrior heavy planet, very white based in white magic. Right. And that's, that is Gideon. I, I get it. 
And in fact, if you look at the title of Gideon's story, because they've given us the story title, uh, if you scroll down a little bit on that page, and I'll, I'll put a link to this, this particular article in the show notes. Kytheon Laura of Akros. Kytheon Eora of Akros. So that may be Gideon's original name. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Oh, is Gideon Jura. I, 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 Gideon may be a Crowan? Could be. I, I oh, guess. please don't. Please don't make this Gideon white and red, because Akros was white and red, weren't they? Ah, uh, yeah, I believe Akros was white and red. Mm, don't make him white and red, that'd make me sad panda. Uh, Boros forever. Although, now that now that you mention it, okay, so Gideon is a white he, planeswalker. He first appeared in a purifying fire with Chandra, who is a red planeswalker. And if you remember, he aligned Gideon himself with Aurelia. was on Ravnica trying to recruit help for the Eldrazi problem from the folks of the Boros Legion. So... I guess he's always been slightly tied into the the red white. Uh okay, so that leads us nicely to Chandra, I guess. So, uh Chandra, her home plane is Kaladesh. Now, do we know anything about Kaladesh? Have we heard I I think that's no. one of the planes that they've never mentioned in story before. Honestly, I don't think either one of her planes have been mentioned before. Uh no, I think Ragatha has. I swear there's a creature that's named after Ragatha. Maybe. Uh, let's, let's see what the internet has to say about that. Cause I think that our listeners love nothing more than hearing us Google things. Uh, so, uh, yes, Ragatha is totally a place. Uh, oh, yeah, of course, because it's mentioned in, uh, uh, a purifying fire. That's why I know it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, alright. So, Ragatha has been mentioned before. So, but, uh, but it looks like, uh, Kal- Kaladesh? Kaladeth? Kala... Kaladesh. Yeah. Uh, that one has not. Okay. Then we come to Jace. Uh, Jace's home plane is, uh, Vryn, V-R-Y-N, and I think that's another one that we do not know that has, has not been mentioned before. Uh, V-R-Y-N. Let's, let's see what that has to say. Oh, it was apparently on a plane chase card. Interesting. Huh. Okay. So this one has been mentioned before. But, uh, apparently only on a planes chase card. Interesting. Alright, well, look at that. We'll learn more about it. But his first planes walk was, of course, to Ravnica. Which, uh, makes sense. Uh, Jace, now the living guild pack of Ravnica, which, uh, yeah, that's a thing that happened. Um, so, that's, I guess, kinda cool. We'll learn more about Jace's past. We'll learn more about Ravnica, which is probably my second favorite plane, I would say. I think Innistrad is my favorite. Oh, I don't know. Zendikar is pretty good too. Okay, my top three in no particular order are Zendikar, Ravnica, and Innistrad. Uh, and that leaves us with Liliana. And I'm gonna leave her home plane for just a second here. Her first planeswalk though was to Innistrad. Makes sense. Which makes lots of sense given uh, what kind of magic she is into, uh, and the demons she has sold her soul to, uh, which there are fewer now. She's killed a couple, but that's okay. But which uh, was, makes sense, because if that's one of the place, first places she went, that's where Grizzlebrand was. Totally true. Now, her home plane, drumroll please, is Dominaria. Way to be boring. Well, okay, on the one hand it's boring, and on the other hand it's exciting, because do you have any idea how long it's been since we've actually had anything about Dominaria? Well, it's because it's pretty much the not even the Coruscant. It's... Uh... I don't know. I'm trying to think of a good analogy of it, but it's 
It's this the boring. This is where this is the center of the universe kind of thing. Uh, yeah, it's it's a little bit generic, right? But uh, Dominaria was where all of the interesting stuff in the early times of magic happened. The Brothers' War happened there. Uh, the Phyrexians invaded there. Uh, now I thought. I may be wrong about this, but I thought that Dominaria is currently technically like sealed off from the rest of the multiverse uh, because that's what we had to do to get rid of the Phyrexians. But I, I don't know about that. Well, I'm sure we'll talk about that on a future episode of uh, of well, Advantage here. And we got to remember, if we're going to Liliana's origins, we're going back thou- over a thousand, almost a thousand years or six hundred years. Yeah, she's, she's old. She's old. Yes, because uh, she traded her soul for for. Life. Which is much different, because all, all the other planeswalkers in this are relatively young, probably within around like 30 years old, relatively. So, she is the old one. She is, so, anything with her is dealing back in the past. Because mm-hmm. the only planeswalkers older than her are Nicobolas, because he's super old. Yeah. And then Soren, because Soren. Soren's a couple thousand years old, I believe. And Ugin, and Karn. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, Karn kind of doesn't count because he was built. Yeah. Funny, Liliana's first pl- first plane. I wonder if her and Soren have ever crossed paths. That's a good question. That is a good question. Something that I would like to have answered uh, sometime soon. I wonder if, the, the, like, the back to the movie, I guess, will have any cameos from other planeswalkers. Uh, or, I don't or, know. Or, or, like, or, like, mentions. Yeah, at least Easter eggs for us of other planeswalkers. Like we meet, like we have Liliana's on Innistrad, and you meet someone like who is part of the Markov family. Mm-hmm. And you know she leaves, and he goes, just like my brother or something. I don't. Know, that would, I would love that. That would be awesome to me. Yeah, yeah, to have mention of those sorts of things. I I agree. That would be pretty cool. I mean, come on, my Twitter handle is not Soren Fanboy Winky Face for no reason. That's absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Uh, so yeah, so those are the storyline things we have to look forward to from, uh, MTG Origins, uh, coming soon. So all that starts up June the 10th. It's gonna wrap up July the 8th, uh, which should be just about the time that we get the full spoiler, cause I, I think it's towards the end of July is when, uh, this, the, the set is out. So it'll be right around the time we're getting spoilers. Uh, speaking of spoilers, hey, you know, if uh, you nice folks at Watsi who are totally listening to this would like to uh, actually, you know, give us a preview card, we'd be happy to talk about it. I mean, I'd love to. We talk about we talk about Gideon. We we would. I, I doubt we're going to get one of the big ones, but uh, hey, we'll hey. talk about anything, right? No, I let's let's shoot for the stars. Yeah, we'll take Gideon. Well, I love that it even gives you a little bit of a little background about who they were. I didn't see this part. Mm-hmm. Gideon is from a troubled street kid to a powerful protector of the innocent. Yep. Jace is from a talented pariah to a billion and mysterious telepath. Liliana is from a spiring healer to a devious necromancer who commands legions of zombies because she is mean. Um, Chandra is from a rebellious troublemaker to an accomplished pyromancer who challenges authority. I think it's acting like she's still not a rebellious troublemaker. Yeah, I was going to say that's inaccurate. I, I was waiting until you got to the end of this to point that out, but yes, it it really feels like what they're saying is uh, Chandra went from a not accomplished troublemaker to an accomplished troublemaker. And then this is from a misunderstood outcast to a warrior dedicated to protecting life on all worlds. Maybe you should really scratch that out as from an outcast to a raging 
whatever Clues uh, uh, wants to bleep yeah, out, yeah, yeah, yeah. who des- descended chaos upon the world because she didn't want to listen. She couldn't sacrifice her world for the many. Yeah. yeah and it she- wasn't like, the Eldrazi weren't even released. Her world just wasn't like super, I don't know, wasn't like super healthy or something. Right. I don't remember exactly, but she's like, nope, let's fix my land and screw everyone else up. Why doesn't this say raging screw up? Yeah, she totally did not watch Star Trek 2. She does not understand that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. That's what I'm going to say there. So, yeah. But I like those little taglines. I, re- I didn't see those before. That's kind of cool. Yep, it's good stuff. Absolutely good stuff. Uh, alright, so is there anything else we wanna, we wanna tackle here today on Potpourri? Anything else come out recently or happen recently that we really need to discuss? Not really. I think, I mean, really, I think the Wizards is, they're really just getting ready for, um, I'm sorry, uh, Origins. Origins, yeah, cause I mean, the, the lead up to Modern Masters was more what's in the set. It's not like we had new mechanics, it's not like we had new storyline. Uh, it's not like we had really a new set, technically. It was a set of old stuff. So uh, we're gearing up towards the interesting time. Uh, and, of course, this fall, the real interesting time when we go back to Zendikar and start with our two set blocks uh, should be really, really cool. Yeah. But, yeah, I think I think that that will wrap us up. And I don't think I have to cut anything terrible this week. So, hey, that's great. Mm, shouldn't have said that. Now I'm tempted to say something. No, 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 no. We can finish the episode without you saying anything terrible. I'm sure. Maybe, maybe after the after the, the ending song, the stinger will just be me randomly bleeping you. <laughs> you know, like uh, like uh, unnecessary censorship of the count. Which, if you haven't seen that one on YouTube, go check it out. I have. It's hilarious. <laughs> that is hilarious. All right. Okay, well, I think we will pull the plug on things for this week. Like I said, next week we'll get back to uh, our usual schedule of hitting a specific topic uh, each time around. We do have a couple of cool things in the works. Um, I am uh, hopeful. No, no, I'll, I'll talk to Rich about that off the. I don't want to. I don't want to tell you guys just in case some things fall through. So yeah, look, cool stuff coming. It's what we do. That's what we do. This is how we do it. <laughs> <laughs> Which reminds me, speaking of of, of old songs, uh, just the other day, and this is a total aside, I ran across a link on the internet that was uh, the original like 15 minute long video for MC Hammer's Too Legit to Quit. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen this, but wow, I had completely pushed that entirely out of my mind, and I'm kind of sad that it's back in there. So, uh, yeah. All right. All right. That's good enough. Uh, if you want to reach us, if you want to tell us how your experience uh, with Modern Masters has gone or your thoughts or your feelings on MTG Origins or Goifgate or any of this stuff, you can do that in a number of ways. You can find us on the web. We're at CardAdvantageCast.com. You can email us. We are MTGCardAdvantage at gmail.com. And you can find us on Twitter. We are at CardAdvantageCast on the Twitters. If you want to reach me directly, your best bet is, well, one of those things, because I read those things too. Uh, or you can tweet at me. I am at Lockluze, spelled just like it is in the show notes. Soren fanboy winky face? Yeah, which I still think you should try and get. I don't know if winky faces are allowed. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I might actually just write out winky face. Yeah, then it's going to be too long. So maybe WF, Soren fanboy WF for the winky face. I, I don't know. Well, right now it's Mind Mage. Eight, 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 we'll yeah, see what happens with this one. 
also also in the show notes. Thank you all very much for listening, and we will see you all next time. Everyone hates Nessa, but they're trying to make her likable, and they would never will.